0: Thank you so much, Reverend Dr. Lightsey. It is indeed a pleasure to be with you all this morning. Thank you to Reverend Dr. Lightsey, Urban Village Church, High Park Woodlawn for inviting me to join you today. I am so delighted to be with you. I am originally from Chicago. I am a diehard lifetime, always uh, loyal, forever loyal Midwestern Chicago kind of girl. Um, I, Dr. Latsy, Dr. Laitsey has always been a powerful mentor to me, and Dr. Laitsey doesn't know this, but I made a commitment to myself because of the commitment that Dr. Laitsey made to me while I was working on my dissertation. I made a commitment to always show up whenever Dr. Laitsey sends out the call for me to, to be present. So thank you. And and, and and that's my commitment to you, Dr. Lightsey. The praise team, thank you. I was in, you all were indeed inspired by the Holy Spirit. I was especially moved by the last song, Speak to My Heart. And lastly, I am so envious that you all are having pizza on the fifth. I so miss Chicago pizza. And I just wanna know, are you having Italian fiesta? or will you be having Lumal Malnati's? Because you know, there is this thing in Chicago, we are very particular about our pizza. Before I deliver my remarks this morning, won't you please join me in a quick moment of prayer. Dear God, guide me this morning. Let the words from my mouth be directly from you. Let my heart be touched by your words, dear God. Dear God, speak through me. Let the words come through me be yours and not mine. God, you know my heart. You know the people's heart. God, you know that this is a heavy topic for some. And I just pray, God, that We keep our hearts and our minds and our spirits open and we're needed where our hearts are not able to receive certain parts of the remarks from today, that we trust that everyone has the free will and the moral agency to be discerning about what they are capable of hearing and holding and that we trust that people will take care of themselves in the ways that they need. Amen and ashe. My talk this morning is called Reproductive Agency is Highly Favored. And it begins with Genesis 1, 26 through 28, the first of two accounts of God's creation of humans. The second account, as you may know, is Genesis 2, seven through eight, wherein God forms man out of the dust of the ground. And it continues in Genesis 2, 18 to 23, wherein God creates the animals and birds to serve as man's helper. Seeing that neither the animals nor the birds served as sufficient helpers or partners to man, the text tells us that God took one of man's ribs while he was asleep and created woman to be his partner, his helper. I wanna focus specifically on the first creation account in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, because it's here where we see God's creation of humankind in God's own image. From the New Standard Revised Version, verse 26 says, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. Further down in verse 27, the text reads, so God created humankind in His image. In the image of God He created them, male and female He created them. Now I've always been a curious sort, always full of questions. So when I first read this particular scripture, I had two questions: Who is the "us" in the text? It indicates more than one. It infers a plural. plural, plural. It infers more than one a plurality tongue tongue struck today. The second question I had was about God's actual creation of humans and that we were created in God's image. Now the book of Genesis is a mix of myths and legends, narrating ancient Israel's traditions and concepts of the past. It is both a complex accounting of authentic historical memories and ancient lore or folklore, about the origins of the cosmos, humankind, and the people of Israel. So the us in the text actually refers to the stories of lesser divine deities described in other biblical texts. So there's this indication that there were other deities present when God created humankind. This was the answer I was after. Who is the us? But the text also says that God created humankind in God's own image. It seems that there was some conversation then between this assembly of other deities and God about what the creation of humankind should look like. Being made in the image of God has various implications. It means that Humankind looks like God and the gods of this particular divine assembly. It also means that humans represent God on earth, that we have godlike qualities, that we have free will, the ability to make moral decisions, that we are moral agents favored with the free will to make decisions about our lives and our bodies. Where the text says that God created humankind in God's own image, female and male, there's no wording that says God created men to be over or to have dominion over women. Instead, the way the text is written, it is implied that God created male and female, man and woman equally, meaning man and woman each have free will and agency, each have the ability to make moral decisions, and both are moral agents. In addition, I might add that even where the text says that humans should have dominion over the creatures of the earth, dominion should be understood as stewardship over and care, not control and subjugation. But that's a talk for another time. Moving to Matthew 1, 18 to 20, which is another text that I bring into my remarks today. It relates a portion of of the story of the birth of Jesus. It is here that Joseph finds out that the woman he is engaged to is with child from the Holy Spirit. The text says that Mary, a virgin, became pregnant before before her and Joseph got married. To become pregnant before marriage dishonored families, the man especially, and it was actually grounds for dismissal or ending the relationship. Now it's important here to remember that in ancient times, marriage was not based on romantic love, but rather based on a contract between families that was about status in economics. Economics played a role and most times, there was a dowry or a payment such as property or money paid by the bride's family to the groom or his family at the time of marriage. Now, Joseph was going to dismiss or end the relationship with Mary after hearing about her becoming pregnant. But an angel of God came to Joseph in his sleep and told him that the child Mary had conceived was conceived from the Holy Spirit. The angel further told Joseph that this child should be named Jesus and that the child would be in God's image and would save God's people. This story not only relates how Joseph came to learn about Mary's pregnancy, but it's also an example of moral agency. There was no demand that Joseph go forth with the marriage to Mary. Joseph had free will and could have made the decision not to go forth with the marriage. We just don't know what the end result would have been. We move next to Luke 1, 28 to 38. Here's where we are told the story of how Mary came to learn that she would become pregnant. And I think it's, it's important to, um, to share a bit about that story. Um, And God came to her and said, greetings, favorite one, the Lord is with you. But Here we are told of how Mary came to learn that she would become pregnant with Jesus. As the text is written, we see actually that Mary was given the free will to make a choice, to exercise reproductive agency. Mary didn't just say, okay, when the angel Gabriel showed up with this message that she would conceive Jesus. No, there was some back and forth dialogue wherein she questioned why her. She had questions about her social economic conditions, questions about the implications of being a virgin and becoming pregnant before marriage. She had questions and needed some assurances about the life her child would lead. This is a story about more than Jesus as Savior. In fact, this story is about Jesus as a liberator and the role of a woman or pregnant capable person being chosen as the vessel through which liberation is brought to God's people. But more importantly, this is a story about free will. Mary exercised her free will and reproductive agency to, and chose to give birth to Jesus. Now, in order to conceive, Mary needed to have a healthy egg available to be fertilized that could be implanted in Mary's uterus. The uterus had to be a healthy environment where the fetus received the necessary nourishment from Mary to support its development into a full-term fetus. There is nothing in the text that describes Jesus's birth as miraculous, meaning Mary then experienced all the physical conditions associated with a woman or a pregnant-capable person having a vaginal birth. We can also surmise that Jesus's birth was not a dry birth without amniotic fluids, but rather a normal vaginal birth where Jesus's body passed through Mary's vaginal canal and entered the world covered with amniotic fluid, blood, and mucus. Now I want you to wrap your minds around the fact that a woman's or a pregnant-capable person's vagina was chosen as the physical passageway through which the liberation of humanity came into existence, and that Mary made the choice to be that vessel. Thus, the word became flesh, through a woman's or a pregnant capable person's vagina. It was covered with blood and amniotic fluid and mucus. That means that the woman's or the pregnant capable person's vagina and all of the associated fluids therein then must be sacred. And they must have some status as a moral agent who was created in God's image and who has is favored with the ability to make decisions about their reproductive agency. So then what is this thing called reproductive justice? And what is the connection between reproductive justice, the Christian tradition, free will and reproductive and sexual agency? Reproductive justice is a theory and framework created by myself and 11 other Black women in Chicago at a conference sponsored by the Ms. Foundation for Women and the Illinois Pro-Choice Alliance. And the conference was about the then Clinton administration's proposal for universal health care reform. The Clinton administration sent a representative to talk to about 150 of us and to present their proposal for universal health care reform. Oddly enough, the proposal didn't include anything about healthcare coverage for reproductive and sexual health care. Imagine being that person, giving that uh, presentation to a room full of about 150 reproductive health and rights activists. And so out of our frustration and out of our understanding about the unique lived experiences and material realities of black women, it is then that we came up with this crazy idea about something called reproductive justice. Reproductive justice rests upon four central pillars that every individual has the human right, the free will and the moral agency to make decisions about their reproductive and sexual autonomy. Reproductive justice is the human right to decide to have a child, to not have a child, to make the decision or to that the, to parent the children, an individual needs the social and economic supports so that the family doesn't just survive, but that the family thrives. And it's also about the right to bodily autonomy and sexual pleasure. Like, the Christian canonical text tells us about humanity. Central to reproductive and sexual justice is recognizing people's humanity. Because when you recognize the humanity of an individual, you also acknowledge their human dignity. And when you acknowledge their human dignity, you recognize their human capabilities. And so a lens of reproductive justice a lens of justice, looks at what people are actually able to do and and to be. It requires creating the conditions that ensures people live lives that recognize their humanity, that acknowledges and respects their human dignity. God, the divine, the belief in something greater than oneself is a part of our moral decision-making, our resilience and our liberation. So the very idea that religion clashes with human reproduction and sexuality is a misnomer, even within the Christian tradition. The human body and sexuality is a wonderful gift from God entrusted to humans created in God's own godly image with free will and moral agency. Now, most religious traditions emphasize love because love is the key to a happy and fulfilled life. Free will is fundamental to that happy and fulfilled life. Just as free will is fundamental to our faith, it is also fundamental to our reproductive and sexual lives and to the struggle for reproductive justice. Moral reflection about issues such as the use of of contraception, whether to carry a pregnancy to term, premarital sex, sexual orientation, and even the use of assisted reproductive technologies has often been influenced by this set of prescriptive norms that prioritizes procreation and heteronormativity. Interwoven within these norms is a prescriptive gender stereotype around how males and females should behave with a preferential leaning towards male superiority and female submission, and no mention whatsoever of the status of pregnant capable persons. The June 24, 2020 decision by the US Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade attempts to invisibilize and deny also medical care to all pregnant capable persons and women. And it not only codifies the prescriptive norms and gender stereotypes but it stands in the way of justice and kindness and human's relationship with God, which was central to ethical reflection for people of faith. Religion and sex are deeply wedded through languages of passion and ecstasy and desire and pleasure within the Christian biblical text. Interpretation all depends upon our literal or contextual understanding of the text. For example, Where some verses may read as binding upon our personal lives, they may very well have been written with a more allegorical intention that spoke to the spiritual state of the Israelites and Christians. There are any number of sexual depictions of the relationship between Jesus and God's people that were meant more in an allegorical sense to depict the relationship between Christ and God's people and the spiritual consummation with The beloved church or the people who are actually the church. Many of the places within the text that talk about sex are in all actuality allegorical narratives about the often contentious relationship between God and God's people. Now this week we saw where state-based violence intersects with issues of reproductive justice. It becomes A reproductive justice issue when violence turns the wombs of women and pregnant capable persons into graveyards because just as reproductive justice tells us reproductive reproductive justice theory tells us that we have the human right to have children to decide not to have children to parent the children we have with the necessary social and economic supports we deserve, we also have the right to raise our children in healthy and safe environments without fear of violence, especially violence from the very state actors and authorities who have been entrusted with the duty to protect them. Black liberation theologian, Dr. James Cone in The Cross and the Lynching Tree presents us with the paradox of the crucifixion of Jesus and the lynching of black bodies on trees during the lynching era from 1880 to 1960. We would be remiss to miss the profound fact that Jesus's crucifixion was also about social and political control through state-based violence. We can find similarities between the cross, the lynching tree, and now the murders of black and brown bodies at the hands of the state. Reproductive justice bears witness to the women and pregnant capable persons, the parents who suffer the loss of their children. We are being called to address the structural violence that is taking away the lives of black and brown children through overzealous policing and through the condemning of even immigrant mothers and pregnant capable persons who make the difficult decision to send their children across borders for a better life and more opportunities. For the women and pregnant capable persons who have lost children at the hands of the state, we are forced to ask ourselves, what does justice look like? What does justice look like for the mothers of Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Manuel and Angel Diaz, Yvette Smith, Jessica Hernandez, Oscar Grant, Tamir Rice, Sandra Bland, George Floyd, And now Tyree Nichols. There was one, there was more than one life lost. Another life was forever changed. A woman or a pregnant capable person lost their child. They too made the ultimate sacrifice. Reproductive justice is about creating narratives that link salvation to justice, radical love and liberation for all humankind. The role of religion in the struggle for reproductive justice is one of liberation, liberating women and pregnant capable persons bodies from all forms of oppression, speaking truth to our God-given free will, our moral agency, standing in the gap for those who need access to safe abortion care, contraception, access to assisted reproductive technology so that they can have children preaching even about the true meaning of evangelicalism, which means to bring forth the good news of liberation for God's people. And social justice is the work that religious leaders and communities must carry forth at the intersections of religion, faith, and reproductive and sexual justice. Because it's evidence that reproductive and sexual agency is highly favored. This is the work that we have all been assigned to carry forth, to carry the mantle of justice and carry forth the work necessary to liberate all of God's people. And this is the work necessary, the work that we all must engage in to show the rest of the beloved community that reproductive and sexual agency is highly favored, that humankind has been entrusted with free will, with the moral agency to make decisions about our reproductive and sexual lives, because we were created in God's image. And if we are created in God's image, then indeed we have the power and authority Given to us through God's, through, given to us through free will, and through our moral agency and our moral capabilities to be able to make and to discern about our reproductive and sexual lives, and so this is what reproductive and sexual agency looks like because it's highly favored by God. Amen and A Sha and I shall